Our text for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, continuing our study in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church. Hear now God's holy word. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the presence, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, He was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you that your Holy Spirit has breathed it out that it has been preserved for us, that we can read it today. And not only are we thankful, not only are we thankful for the words themselves, but the message that they contain. This message of the resurrection of our Savior, who has defeated death in his death and in his resurrection has brought us to life. And so we rejoice in this today and cause me by your Holy Spirit to be an articulate messenger of these wonderful things. Open our ears and fill our hearts with these glorious truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The, late, the late Michael Crichton was one of the most successful, famous science fiction authors of the past 30 years. You probably know him best as the author of Jurassic Park, but he wrote many other uh, fascinating um, science fiction and, and uh, uh, thrilling novels. Uh, Thrillers, I think they're called, uh, actually. Uh, thrillers. And, uh, but in addition to all of his fiction writing, he wrote a number of uh, papers on, on social and scientific subjects, including one, one paper he wrote that was critical of the news media and the way that Americans trust it and consume the news media. And I'm going to read a section from that paper. It's just fascinating. He says, media carries with it a credibility that is totally undeserved. You open the newspaper to an article on some subject you know well, whether physics or show business. You read the article and you see the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often the article is so wrong, it actually presents the story backward, reversing cause and effect. I call these the wet streets cause rain stories. Papers full of them he says. He continues, in any case, you read with exasperation or amusement the multiple errors in a story and then turn the page to national or international affairs and read with renewed interest as if the rest of the newspaper was somehow more accurate about far off Palestine than it was about the story you just read. You turn the page and forget what you know. He says, I'd point out that this does not operate the same in other arenas of life. In ordinary life, if somebody consistently exaggerates or lies to you, you soon discount everything they say. In court, there is the legal doctrine of falsus in uno, 
falsus in omnibus, which means untruthful in one part, untruthful in all. But when it comes to the media, we believe against evidence that it's probably worth our time to read the other parts of the paper, when in fact, it almost certainly isn't. The only possible explanation for our behavior is amnesia. And, and that was his, it was his take. Another commentator points out that Crichton was being far too harsh. He was overstating his case when he says the media has no credibility. It's far too harsh when he says it's a waste of time. I mean, sometimes they do get the baseball scores right. So it's, it's overstating it, uh, Crichton was. Now, uh, of course, you and I know there surely are honest and faithful sources of news. There are, there are people who really do care about presenting the truth with as little bias as, as humanly possible. They do their work with integrity. But there is also a place for us to have, when we hear news, when we, approach, when we approach these things, there's a place for us to have this healthy incredulity, a heightened awareness about the fact that the people telling me things, ordinarily, the people telling me things are also selling me things. They're, they're selling me something. They're selling me ideas and doctrines and whole systems of theology packaged as news, packaged as information. And so I always have to be vigilant knowing that I'm likely never getting the whole story. There's the truth somewhere in there, but I'm not getting the whole story. I'm getting a little window. I'm getting a little piece of the story. This becomes even more complicated when we try to study history. How do we know that we're being told the truth? Well, it takes a great deal of work for us to test to study, to judge, to exercise good critical thinking skills so that we can acknowledge and know and realize the genuine article when we find it. So because we desire to be good critical thinkers, we don't want to believe lies, we don't want to repeat lies, we need to hear again and again from God's word that the great events that procured our salvation were indeed historical events. They are true, verifiable, and reliable events. We need to hear and know that the remarkable, extraordinary events that we read in the Bible really happened in human history on earth, in places you can go and walk around today. That the birth and ministry and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ were indeed real factual events in human history. And the things on the first page of the gospels are as reliable and as true and can be trusted as much as the things on the next page. You see, the Bible never puts you in the same position as the newspaper. You never read the Bible and have to scratch your head at something and say, ah, I'm not too sure that happened exactly the way it says. And, and then you're supposed to flip the page and say, oh yes, I believe that completely and entirely. The Bible doesn't put us in that position. Uh, the Bible uh, uh, authors tell the truth and they get it right and they show us their work. They show us how they got to where they are. The men who were inspired to write these events and record them for us were so careful to make sure that everything was verifiable and sustainable. And, and, and it was based on testimony. They keep bringing it up because they knew how difficult these things were to believe. 
People didn't just accept the virgin birth of Jesus because in that time in history, they were ignorant and didn't know how babies were born. That's not why. That's, it was just as incredible and just as remarkable. The virgin birth of our Savior was just as unbelievable today as it was then. There was no, there's no difference. The resurrection, you know, people don't just come back from the grave after lying in it. This, this is not the way the world works. And so they didn't believe these things because they were ignorant. They, were, they had to uh, come to them by faith just as we do today. And so the, the writers of the Gospels and, and the New Testament authors in particular, which we're, we're studying now, they knew how difficult some of these things were to believe. And so over and over and over again, they appealed to firsthand testimony so that while they're writing these things, anybody could walk up and talk to the guy that they mentioned by name and ask, did it really happen the way that Mark said it happened? Did it really happen the way that Luke said this went, went, went down? Did this really happen the way that Paul said it did? So the authors and, and, and books, uh, the authors of the books of the Bible, they don't, you know, if, if you're trying to make up stories, you leave things a little fuzzy around the edges, right? You, you, you leave out some details so that, so that no one could ever call you on it and prove that you're lying. But no, not the author's. Of the, of the New Testament. That wasn't their approach. What they're writing about is so important that they couldn't risk inaccuracies. And so they tell their audience in Acts chapter 2, we are witnesses of these things as you yourselves know. We saw these things and you know we saw these things. You know that we were with Jesus. The, the apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle, he says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So every chance they get, they go out of their way to assert the full veracity of the message of the gospel. Every chance they get, John, John says, he says, the disciples heard, saw with their eyes, touched with their hands the word of life. And each of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, end with stories of the resurrected Jesus out in public, visiting various groups of people after his resurrection. So this wasn't a private resurrection that only a handful of people saw. There were many eyewitnesses. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians brings all this forward to underscore the point that when we repeat the gospel, when we share the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are talking about things that really happened in the world. We're not sharing parables or fables. We're not talking about myths. We're not talking about things that we wish would have happened if we got to write the way the things that they, they went that way. No, no, we're talking about historical events. But there's a strain of, of liberal biblical scholarship, and if you ask me, I, I, can show you, I can show you the books and I can show you the commentaries. There's a strain of biblical scholarship that wants to read the Bible and teach the Bible, but read these events as if they're allegories. Read them as if they're just parables. It doesn't matter whether they really happen or not because they do believe that ancient man was ignorant and he struggled to describe what he saw but he was just, ancient man was just trying to communicate certain timeless truths through stories. And so he came up with these outrageous fairy tales to talk about uh, his, his ideas. And so it's our job, they would say, it's our job to comb through what was written and try to come up with what really happened and what was really said, but, but we can't take anything at face value. And so when we come to the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes with loaves and fishes, well, you've got to read that allegorically, right? Nobody can do that. That's impossible. That's ridiculous. Nobody can do that. But, but, but what's the lesson there? 
Oh, oh yeah, we should just feed the hungry. That's, that's the lesson there. That's the message. And it really doesn't matter whether or not that thing really happened. But what they miss and miss so badly is that the Christian faith invites a level of historical scrutiny. You see, when the gospel writers write, they, they name who was Herod, who was Caesar, who was governor. And, and, and you don't do that unless you're saying here, this is history. This is history we're writing and we're calling on you to come check it out. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if this is false, if we're not telling you the truth, that's a wrap. It's over. If we are making this up, then you don't believe us. Look, this is history we're writing here and we're calling on you to come check it out. Um, so, So if these things didn't really happen, what's the point of believing. If somebody just fabricated these stories and passed them off as history, uh, if somebody's making things up, I don't care what he says about feeding the hungry or sacrifice or life or, or whatever else. If he's making up stories to pass these things off, he's a fool and a liar. And I don't want to listen to anything else he says. If this is all made up, I'm not going to read the resurrection as some kind of parable of second chances. That's, that's not what I'm, that's not what I, I don't have time for that. Again, as, as Crichton pointed out, falsus in uno, falsus in omnibus. Unfaithful, untruthful in one part, untruthful in all. If the resurrection is not a true, accurate, historical event, verifiable, then it's over. It's done. I don't want to hear anything else. It's all or nothing. And that's exactly what Paul will say in this chapter. One of the ways that we can tell that the New Testament authors intended for us to believe the historicity of what they were writing is that we can watch how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. You see, the the New Testament writers don't treat the Old Testament like this loose collection of mythical stories that, that, you know, you can just kind of get your own meaning out of these things. The New Testament writers treat the Old Testament like history. They wrote about the men and events of the Old Testament like they really happened because, you know, they did, because they really did happen. They viewed the Old Testament as reliable, accurate history. Jesus said this. Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, Jesus says this. If you don't believe Moses, you don't believe me. It's a package. You don't believe what Moses says, I don't, you're not going to trust or hear what I say. And so what Jesus does there is verify the historicity of everything that Moses wrote, including Genesis chapter 1 including the flood, including the exodus and the Red Sea crossing, including all of this. And Jesus grew up reading Moses literally. Jesus of Nazareth grew up believing in a seven-day creation week with 24-hour days. But somehow we're more intelligent, we're, we're, we're smarter than Jesus because we question that, right? You know, we found some dinosaur bones in South Dakota that Jesus didn't know about. And so that, that just kind of undercuts everything that Moses wrote, right? Jesus treated Moses and the Old Testament like history. They knew that they were writing about God's continuing interaction with his people, Israel. And so they wrote with as much historicity and gravity and veracity and attention to detail as the prophets of old, uh, the, the writers of the New Testament. That's the message that Paul wants to convey to the Corinthian Christians in this first part of chapter 15. And so um, this is a 
wonderful. This is one of the most pivotal, pivotal, important chapters in all of the New Testament. So if you'll uh, humor me, I, I think I want to spend about three weeks in 1 Corinthians 15. I see the finish line of, of 1 Corinthians. I know we're almost to the end of this, this epistle, but I, I want to break this into three, three bites. And we're, so we're just going to take the first 11 verses today. And so as he opens up the subject of the resurrection of Jesus, he responds to their questions about the resurrection. And he's going to demonstrate to them that the resurrection of Jesus is fundamental to the gospel. And the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead means that his people are going to be raised from the dead as well. See, the Corinthians, they've, they've fallen into this temptation. We've seen him address this over and over. This temptation to remain respectable, to have a, have a certain um, air of importance and, and, and acceptability about them in the community. And number one, that, that really caused them to be embarrassed to Paul because Paul was not respectable in Greek society. And the resurrection on top of that, the resurrection is not a respectable doctrine. Nobody's going to take you seriously if you go around talking about the resurrection of a, you know, a, a Jewish teacher. Nobody's going to respect you uh, for that. And yet Paul sets this doctrine dead center and says, if this didn't happen, it's all a waste of time. It's all lies. We're, uh, we're gone. We're, we're done for. So let's work through these 11 verses quickly uh, today. Verse 1. Uh, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are being saved. You are saved. Uh, These events, he says, that I've communicated to you are the foundation of your salvation. By these events, you are being saved. Now, of course, salvation is once for all, and there's a sense in which salvation is, is a done deal for us. Uh, but in another sense, there, there are progressive benefits to our salvation. We don't exhaust the blessings of salvation when we first believe or, or when we're born into a Christian household. Salvation goes on working its way out in our lives from strength to strength and glory to glory. He finishes uh, verse 2, uh, by which you are being saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believe in vain. Now, here's the first hint of something he's going to refer to later, that if the message of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus isn't historically accurate, then our faith is vain. Our hope is empty, and we're all just a bunch of liars in the end if this isn't true. So Paul's going to set out to remind them of that story and square it with the testimony of the witnesses. Verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, I didn't originate this, he says. I didn't make up the message that I'm giving you. I'm passing on what I received. I heard this. I received it by faith. And now I'm passing it along to you to do the same. What is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul won't let us forget why all this was necessary in the first place. Why why did Jesus die? Well, it was for our sins. You can't get away from that. Our problem is sin, and Jesus is our Savior from sin. It's only because his crucifixion and resurrection really did happen that we can be delivered from the power and guilt and corruption of our sins. So our sins are the, are the, are the cause. Of the, it's, what, it's, it's what all this is about, and we, we can't escape that or get away from that. Verse 4, and that he was buried. Well, of course he was buried, right? Why is this part of our creeds? Why do we say that he was crucified, dead, and buried. Why do we always put buried in there? I mean, that, that should be assumed, right? Why do all the Gospels give an account of the burial of Jesus? 
Well, it's so that we have no doubt about the reality of the death of Jesus. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He didn't collapse. He was put into a tomb. And it's also a great comfort to us to know that as scary as the tomb is, and as, as frightful of a thought uh, it may be at times for us to think about death and maybe what's waiting for us in death, the pain and the horror of death, what, whatever our worries or anxieties surrounding death are, we can always come back to this, that Jesus has already been there. He's already been through all of that. Jesus has beat us to the grave. He's already been through death and he straightened things out for us before we get there. So, so that's why we always remind us, yeah, he was buried. He went through that. And, uh, Paul continues, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is the second time he's used that phrase, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Not only did he not make these things up, not only are there verified eyewitnesses, but these things were the fulfillment of Scripture, which means that Jesus is not being carried along on a, on a, as, as a victim of events that were outside of his control. These were the reasons that he came into the world, which have been foretold a long time before. Verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas. You know, that's, that's Peter. He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles. Notice how he refers to those who have died in the last few years. He says, uh, they, those are, they're fallen asleep. Death was once viewed with horror. Now, now, because the resurrection is a reality for the Christian, death is nothing more scary than sleep. They're, they're asleep. They're resting in Jesus. He says that most of the ones who saw Jesus are still alive, which, which displays his confidence in their testimony. They could be interrogated. If, if, if someone wants to investigate his, flame, his claims further, go talk to Peter. Go look him up. Go talk to James. Talk to the rest of the 12 if you need to. Ask them. Now, you might think, well, yeah, sure. The resurrected Jesus appeared to all these people who were his friends, but why didn't he go see Caesar? I mean, why didn't he go to Pilate or Herod or the Sanhedrin? I mean, that really would have made an impact if Jesus went to them. Well, there's several reasons Jesus didn't appear to Pilate or Herod or Caesar or the Sanhedrin. First, Jesus told all the unbelievers who rejected him in Matthew 23, he says, I'm not going to appear to you again until I come in judgment. The next time you see me, it's going to be in judgment. The fact that they didn't see the resurrected Lord Jesus was punishment for their lack of faith. It was, it was judgment because they didn't believe in his words. That's the first reason. Secondly, you remember in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus said, even if someone does come back from the dead, this generation would not believe him. Faith is never the product of evidence. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The hardest heart is only made more skeptical when you lay the evidence before him. Uh, faith requires a work of the Holy Spirit. And so there's no guarantee that if Jesus were to appear to Pilate or Caesar, that that would have changed anything. Third, the fact that he appeared to his disciples leaves room for the important role of human witnesses. From the beginning, Jesus determined that the gospel would spread through the work of these men that he called. That's why he called them. He called them to be his witnesses. Now he appears to them so that they can do their job. Fourth, you know, if the, if the gospels were fiction, I think I would write maybe this fantastic story in there about, about 
Jesus appearing to Pilate and his sudden repentance and, and, uh, and change of heart. Or maybe, maybe he appears to Caesar and tells him a few things about how to run the world while he's at it. That's the kind of stuff that shows up in the apocryphal gospels. That's the kind of stuff that shows up in myths and legends. And if you're making stuff up, that's how you would write it. The fact that Jesus doesn't make those kinds of fantastical, dramatic experiences adds to the authenticity of, of the account. And as Paul shows us, we still have a long list of verifiable witnesses. Verse 8, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Uh, Paul puts his own encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus on the same level as the other resurrection appearances. uh, Paul says, I was the last one. I was the last in line to have seen the Lord. And because of that, he calls himself one abnormally born. And the word he uses there is a pretty strong and it's kind of an impolite word. It's a rude word uh, that, that you might talk about a deformity um, or, or, or talk about a, uh, a miscarriage of some kind. He, he says, my birth into the Christian faith was out of time. It was not normal. It was, it was freakish. It was ugly, he says. The, the other apostles have been with Jesus for years where I spent that time persecuting the church. So Paul recognizes his own abnormality and the, and the, and, and, and the, the, the uh, irregular way that, that he came to trust in Jesus. And he recognizes his status as an outsider. And so he's saying, even to me, even to this mess, even to this freakish abnormality that is my life, even to me, Jesus appeared. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So he says the other apostles and the other believers witnessed it. I witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus. And we all say the same thing. We're all in agreement on the events of the gospels. And this agreement, this testimony, this this story is the basis of your belief. It is the basis of your forgiveness. It is the basis of your eternal life. This is the message that has brought you from death to life. This has delivered you from the world of darkness to the world of light. And none of this is based on fairy tales or stories that have been made up to teach you some kind of lesson. Again, we're told by the liberal... Uh, seminary professors and we're told by various commentators and we're told you know the guys who are on the history channel around Easter time they always show the same specials we're all just they're all just kind of scratching their beard and I was saying they say we're just kind of wrestle with the resurrection you know they get they get real tense in their shoulders and they go we're just wrestling with the thing because it's so confusing and I'm not sure we can believe it Um, they say that nothing really changes if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin Nothing really changes if Lazarus was not raised or or if Jesus never really healed a blind man or if he was never raised bodily from the grave. Nothing is really different because to them, the message of Christianity is essentially the same. When you get down to it, the message of Christianity is the same as any other religion as far as they're concerned. It's, It's the same as any other myth since the dawn of time. You can summarize it in two words. Be nice. That's it. Be nice because you have a nice God and you have a nice Jesus and you have a nice church and you have nice Christians and everybody just be nice. If everybody would just be nice, then 
then we would all have kind of a utopia, and that's the message of the gospel. You see, brothers and sisters, that only works if the Bible is just a set of ideas. If the Christian faith is just a set of ideas, you get the impression when it comes to the stories, you can take it or leave it. When it comes to the ideas, that's what's important. That's, that's, the, that's the impression we get even from some faithful Christians, uh, commentators and writers and uh, authors and speakers, that it's all about the ideas. It's all about, it's, it's important that you think the right things. And Christianity is basically a set of right things to think. But it isn't. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't even a set of rules. It isn't a set of political or economic agendas. Now, indeed, it contains ideas. It includes things to do. There is a way to live. It gives power to economies and to governments. But at the very heart, the Christian faith is something very different from anything else in the world. It's not simply a set of ideas or, or thoughts or, or theological puzzles that we've somehow worked out. No, the gospel is good news about a course of events which have happened in the world, a series of events that have changed the world to such a degree that the world can never be the same again. And for those of us who believe that these things really happened, and those of us who live in the light of these historic events, we will never be the same again either. The gospel is not about getting people to accept ideas or celebrate ideas, but to accept and celebrate events. Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary and was made man. Jesus was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Jesus suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. You see, when we confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed in just a little while, we're not going to be talking about ideas. We're going to be talking about events. We are talking about our, our, our core of our faith is a series of historical events. And the point that Paul is making as he opens this grand treatise on the resurrection, the point that he's making is either these things really happened, either these events are true, or the world has no hope. Either these things really happened or we have wasted our lives following a lie. We are still in our sins and there is no Savior. If they're just parables, then forget it. If they're just stories, if they're just ideas, then forget it. This is it. This is our only chance. This is the only consistent message in the whole world. This is the only way to live. And praise God, we can have total confidence that the things that we receive in the Gospels really did happen exactly the way the Bible says. And we can bet our eternal lives on the fact that they are true. Don't ever be tempted to think. And I know young people, you, you uh, are, are entering a stage of, of doubt and conflict and wonder. And there's so many questions coming at you from so many different directions. And I know you ask this question because I've, I've asked this question. Ask this question, well, I wonder if I've really followed the right path. I mean, is, this, is the Christian faith, is this the right way? Is this the right religion? I mean, there's so many options out there and so many people all around the world. How do I know I picked the right one? Well, first of all, you didn't pick anything. God chose you. Okay, we'll start there. You didn't choose God. He chose you. He has grabbed you and he has pulled you into his kingdom. Let's start there. Second, though, if the gospel is false, that's it. 
That's, that's all there is. There are no other chances. There's nothing else. There are no other opportunities. There is nothing else in the whole world that is going to answer your need to be cleansed of your sins. Everyone knows that there's a standard. Every single person on the face of the earth knows that there is something that is right and there is something that is wrong. And we know our own inability to live up to that standard. We know that we fail to meet that standard. So what do you do about the load of guilt that comes when you fail to reach and meet the standard? Who's got an answer for that? Who's got an answer for that guilt and that weight of, of, of guilt that, uh, that crushes us. Who has an answer for that? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. You must call on his name and ask for forgiveness. There is no other way. Furthermore, somewhere on this planet, and you may not want to think about this, you may not want to talk about it, but I'm going to make you think about it. Somewhere on this planet, there is a, uh, about six feet of dirt that you're going to be under someday. Somewhere, you may know where that is. You may have it picked out already. Maybe you don't. I can tell you though, God has it picked out because it's there. You're going to draw your last breath and one day your heart is going to beat for the last time. What other philosophy, what other world religion, what other system of belief, what other idol, what other God has a consistent, reliable answer for you pertaining to what happens to you when you draw your last breath? Where is the God who has defeated death? Where is the God who has been through death and has been victorious through death and has come out and had more life on the other side? Who else has done that? Name him. What other God has defeated death and promises eternal life like this? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. There is no one else. You must call on his name and ask for eternal life. So am I worried that I'm on the wrong path? No, I'm pretty confident that I'm right where I need to be. Pretty confident. When it comes to it, as far as I'm concerned, it's Jesus or nothing. I don't want another God. I don't, I don't care about the rest of them. They're all lacking. They're all worthless. In fact, they're pretty spiteful when you study them. They're all hateful. And I despise them. I hate them. I don't want anybody but Jesus. Only, only Jesus. Now we're going to spend a couple more weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, but that is the message as he begins. Only the crucified and resurrected and glorified and ascended king has an answer for your sins. Only he has an answer for the problem of death and pain and suffering. Only he is going to bring you through that to life. Jesus is the way, not a way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm thankful for him. And I, I'm happy to be his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for this remarkable, incredible, wonderful work you have accomplished through him. As we delight in his resurrection over the next couple of Sundays, make us to be the resurrection people, the people who spread life by our words and by our deeds. Uh, make us to be the people who walk in your spirit and who share this life with the world. Father, strengthen us in every way we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.